Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's incredible panel, returning to the roundup is Eric Cook. Eric is the founder of Downfield, a boutique communications firm and former communications director for New York City Council Speaker Melissa Mark Viverito. Eric, thanks for making the time today and coming back. Thanks for having me. Also returning to the roundup is Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's campaign, and she's worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thank you, Ron. Great to see you. On this week's roundup, We'll dive into the latest moves by the January 6th committee and the recently revealed texts from Fox News hosts to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, the reinstated remain in Mexico immigration policy after a ruling from the Fifth Circuit Court. And finally, in our segment for Politicology Plus members, we'll talk about Time Magazine's selection of Elon Musk as person of the year. If you're not already subscribed, you can head over to politicology.com slash plus to get the plus segment and join our community. Let's dig in. There's been a ton of news out of the January 6th committee this week, but one of the biggest pieces is the news that on Tuesday, the House voted to recommend the DOJ pursue criminal charges against former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows for failing to appear for a deposition with the committee. Meadows became the second former Trump administration official to face a referral for criminal charges after the committee approved the criminal contempt report against Steve Bannon in October. Also this week, Liz Cheney revealed that Mark Meadows has received numerous text messages urging Trump to take some action to stop the riot. Meadows produced those without claiming privilege. Several Fox News hosts texted Meadows, and we'll get to them, but I want to start with the lawmakers who texted him. Most of their identities haven't been revealed yet, but Jim Jordan has confirmed that he is one of the people who sent messages to Meadows, and that read, quote, on January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all, end quote. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson told CNN that that the committee will make a decision about when to release the names within the next week. But as of right now, Thompson said only House members, not senators, had texted Meadows during the attack. He also said the panel will likely inform the Republican members before it takes any action. And another text came on January 7th and wrote that, quote, yesterday was a terrible day. We tried everything we could in our objection to the six states. I'm sorry, nothing worked, end quote. So this lawmaker didn't think it was terrible that there was an insurrection. They thought it was terrible that the insurrection didn't succeed. There's obviously a ton more news that I didn't summarize here. Uh, So feel free to mention anything that popped out to either of you, but I want to know how you're thinking about the coordination between members of Congress and the White House in an attempt to subvert the election. Liz, why don't you lead off? Uh, It's a little cringy, right, as you're reading all of that information, because these are text messages that we will soon learn the identities of the authors. And I think it will be even more alarming than just reading the text themselves, understanding who decided to say what and when. Ron, I, I, we've talked about this on the show before. It's it's sincerely just scary what is happening and what to me is doubly scary other than learning about these texts and, and again, the words that are within them 
it's really thinking from a political perspective on how this is going to impact the election. How are voters going to look at this? Are voters going to look at these texts and say they're fabricated? They're not real. Anybody can make up a text. Anybody can use clip art or Photoshop and just make something. How do we know this is real? So I know, again, this is something that you and I have talked about at length and we've discussed on the show. What will voters believe? What will keep voters engaged in this discussion? And I think that is something that we really need to continue to focus on as political operatives on how this is going to play with the electorate, quite frankly. Yeah, Eric, I really want your read on this, especially since, you know, this this seems to be one of the the most important things happening right now. And yet, uh, it, you know, Mike Mike Madrid has has characterized the news coming out about the about the insurrection and the prosecutions both on the federal on the on the, on the DOJ side and on the January 6th committee side as sort of a refrigerator hum that does over time sort of uh, change public perception, but it, but it certainly isn't doing so in, in any big and you know inflective way for voters. They just don't seem to care. They seem to be tuning out. And obviously, you know, we'll get to Fox in a little bit, um, and, and the ability of of viewers on the right, voters on the right, to live in an alternate reality. But um, before we get to that, how how are you reading the news of the week uh, out of the out of the committee? I mean, you know. When members of Congress are sworn in, uh, they swear an oath to defend and protect the Constitution. Um, you know, this is the United States of America. We don't swear allegiance to a leader. We don't swear allegiance to a king. We don't swear allegiance to a political party. It's to the Constitution, right, which is the fabric that holds, uh, you know, 50 states together in into a union and you know when you start to see um members of congress who are supposed to take this oath seriously who are supposed to take this oath as the 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 crux of what they're supposed to be doing in washington and you see them saying so casually uh you know sorry our insurrection didn't work basically <laughs> Sorry, our attempt to throw out the will of, uh, you know, millions of voters didn't pass. Um, and doing it in such a sort of like casual way, there's a banality to it that is, um, that, that will never not be, not be shocking. Um, you know, there was no voter fraud. There was no, uh, there was no movement to, to quote unquote, steal this election. Joe Biden won this election. And it really wasn't even that close. And, you know, when you see what happened on January 6th and you see the, you know, we're going to find, we're only going to find out more, right? This is, you know, the, the, the other day, every day is like, you know, going to get worse for the lawmakers, the operatives, the, 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 the money people behind the scenes, um, the, the right-wing activists who, who tried to put this together, it's only going to get worse for them, right? As we keep digging and we keep understanding, you know, how this was put together, you know, Trump famously doesn't, you know, text or anything like that. Um, which is why you saw, you know, uh, Don Jr. Texting Meadows, right? Because he, he can't, his dad won't text him back or no, but he won't text him back. So, you know, it, it, how we sort of, how the pieces get put together, and how we understand the the different command and control in this it's it's only going to get worse it's only going to get uglier and it it's it's very very 
you know, putting aside Republican, Democrat, it's, it's very dark for American democracy, right? That you had members of Congress who are so willing to, you know, roll over for, of all people, Donald Trump, right? And it's, 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 it's only going to get worse. We've also touched on this before, but one of the things that I, I'm, you know, particularly worried about is how these members are mythologizing what happened on that day. And, you know, in, in a normal world, we would think that these revelations would be utterly damning for anybody running for re-election on the Republican side who participated in the, you know, but but I actually think they're going to have the opposite effect, at least I among agree. the base. And and honestly, that's that's where most elections now are won and lost because of, uh, you know, whether whether it's gerrymandering or the big sort or what we know that the vast majority of, of house races are not competitive anymore. I think there's like it's down to the double digits of of um, the low double digits numbers of districts that are actually competitive. And so these races are now won uh, in the primaries. And, and I, it seems to me this news is only going to be a boon for those guys. That's, that's the really, the really troubling part. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. As, as, um, Eric was just talking, you know, what I was thinking in my mind is like cancel culture is a real thing. Um, however, I don't really see it coming into our politics as a result of what is coming out of, the J6 committee. I think, um, if anything, Ron, you just hit it totally spot on. If anything, I think it will help a lot of these folks, which is very alarming. Um, but I don't think that canceling any lawmakers, um, or any Fox news anchors. And again, you know, I know we'll get to that, but I don't think these folks are going to be canceled (laughs) for their behaviors and it's wild, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's like they're on a victory lap, frankly. you know, dating all the way back to November 4th of 2020, the day after the election, uh, there was a lawmaker who texted Meadows with a detailed strategy to have Republican-controlled state houses like Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania throw out the election results and appoint their own electors. And we're now watching as states pass laws that will let them do this in the next election. Um, this is something that I can't, I can't stop thinking about. Uh, and I am becoming more and more convinced that the greatest threat to the American experiment is not uh, it, it, it is not climate change, it is not inflation, it is not uh, critical race theory, it is not even voting rights. Yeah. Frankly, it is it is legalized election subversion. Mm-hmm. That's that's what's happening right now, and Republicans are quietly laying the groundwork for that right now in the states. And uh, you both work on uh, on the Democratic side uh, of politics, and I I I wonder how you see um, Democrats. Okay, we've talked about this a little bit before too, but I want to I want to um, I want to dive in a little bit. It seems to me that Democrats have a hard time focusing on the states, and maybe that's because uh, maybe that's because of a general preference for nationalized solutions. Uh, maybe, I, I, I don't know what exactly it is, but Eric, it does seem to me that, that Democrats, uh, failing to perform well, or even focus on state legislative races, um, uh, state and local authorities, um, essentially cedes control to Republicans, uh, to do what they want at the state level. And that's exactly what's happening now. They're just really good at focusing on these, on these unsexy, 
uh, uh, statewide and local county offices that actually are the hinges of democracy. And that's what we see them trying to replace right now. So I wonder whether whether it's from a tactical uh, tactical perspective or from a communications perspective, what do Democrats need to do? Uh, what do you think they will do? And um, uh, and how are you thinking about that? I, I think you know part part of it is uh, it, it, it is a little bit of unluck unluckiness, right? Like in 2010, Democrats lost uh, a whole host of. Uh, uh, of governorships, state houses, state legislative races, and that that sort of set the tone for the next decade. As you know, Republicans could draw the lines and, and do a lot of these things that we're seeing now. So that becomes kind of like it, it, I hate I don't want to use the word structural, but it's almost structural, right? Where like you, you know you you won in 2010, and then you know Democrats spent the next 10 years building back. There's been a lot of uh, investment in the states. We see it, you know, the, the, the Democratic, the, the DLCC, you know, is an organization that's heavily focused on electing, you know, local offices, flipping seats, investing in candidate trainings and things like that. And I think the DNC and some others have, have done a lot of focusing on the states. You know, the problem is that, uh, you know, for better or worse, it seems like in these years when redistricting, when the lines are on the table, is when you know we've had uh, some some either you know some poor results you know but to one thing you just said a moment ago that that I think is important you were talking about Republicans and you were talking about January sixth and you're talking about the election you know there is no incentive structure for Republicans to um, to not sort of go along with all this right there's a there's a there's a um, guy running Ohio Senate uh, named Bernie Marino, I think his name is. And right after the election, he was like, guys, the election wasn't stolen. Uh, you know, it's time to come together, time to unite. Um, you know, uh, now he's running an ad that says uh, President Trump said the election was stolen. He was right. What, 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 what changed? He's running in a Republican primary, right? Like there's, there's no, you know, there's no, there's no permission structure for Republicans to go against this stuff. Um, and, you know, that's where, you know, it, it, it's a it's a huge problem. Yeah, Liz, uh, <laughs> what what level what level yeah. of concern should we have about this uh, this, frankly, legal uh, strategy to subvert elections in, in 2022 actually playing out in the next election. Cycle. Yeah. And Ron, I know I've, I've said this before. I don't know if I'm, uh, sometimes on, on your show as the resident democratic naysayer, but I have far less kind words, um, to say than, than my dear friend, Eric here. Um, look, I am an Obama Democrat. Um, I think he is a really inspirational leader. I think he did some pretty amazing work. I think he is a great person. That said, when you look at his politics and how he handled, you know, politically these different elections at the state level that you are speaking about, you know, specifically, more than 1,100 state legislative seats were flipped from blue to red during the Obama presidency. And so you could say maybe they were just so focused on national policy, foreign policy, I mean, you know, to, to not take the time to work alongside the DNC, which is the political arm of the Democratic Party, and of course, of the White House when the Democrats are in control. And you could argue that maybe the right leadership wasn't in place, or, you know, to Eric's point, 2010 was just unlucky. Um, 
I don't subscribe to that as somebody who worked at the DNC and someone who, you know, has has hung my hat in those cubicles um, for a time. I think that Democrats do not focus on the states. I think that people are finally waking up to that over the last couple election cycles, in particular 2016 with a Donald Trump victory. He didn't win because of his incredible national policy perspectives and obviously losing the popular vote. Some people would argue that he didn't even win in the first place, but it was all about the states and it was all about the Republican focus on these state houses and going after you know, when you talk about races that aren't sexy, who really cares from a grassroots or a donor perspective? I want to go after the secretaries of state races. I really want to focus on attorneys general races. No one was thinking that Republicans until very do. recently, but Republicans do. And this is why they are so successful. So back to your point, um, you know, going down this discussion path, when you are talking about you know, delegitimizing our democratic process, it's because Republicans methodically, cycle after cycle, have gone after the races for the positions in states that can or won't certify these elections. And they've done it expertly and they do it with very tested, um, you know, perfected rhetoric. And we're we're seeing what's going on with that right now. And it's definitely cause for alarm. And I agree with you that, yes, climate change and so many other, let's call them social or global issues are the top. Important issues. They're just not the most urgent. Exactly. Spot on. I mean, I I just worked with a guy named, um, with named David Pepper, who is the former chair of the uh, Ohio Democratic Party. And he just wrote a book called uh, Laboratories of Autocracy, where he really just goes through methodically you know, everything that, 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 you know, that Liz just talked about, um, you know, Republicans targeting, uh, you know, the secretaries of state or county commissioners or other sort of obscure, you know, boards and whether it's school boards or, you know, planning boards or whatever, and, you know, building power from the bottom up. Um, and then in turn using that power to do, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've just talked about, potentially to change laws with electorates or to give the power to the governor to throw out, you know, certain things and things like that. And, you know, 100% right, Liz, that, you know, that that this is something that has just been this slow more. I mean, we're seeing it right now with, with Roe v. Wade, right? This is a slow 50-year march to get to the decision from the Supreme Court or to get to the Supreme Court hearing a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, this is, this is very much a, a long game and, you know, I think Democrats have been, you know, have been waking up, um, you know, a lot more recently. Um, we need to do, we need to do a lot more of it. We need a lot more investment. Um, we need, you know, we need to also just be competing in more places because if you're gonna, you know, if, if you're, a you know, we, we actually saw this of all places in Mississippi in 2019. Uh, there was a bunch of races, state legislative races, where you know no one had ever ran in, uh, you know, suburban Jackson um, assembly districts or state state representative districts, and like they, they they randomly flipped a couple seats because you know the the Republicans running had been there for thirty years, never faced a competitive race. All of a sudden, someone young, interesting, and dynamic is running, 
and poof, you flip the seat. So, you know, it, it's, 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 it's investment, it's commitment, and it's just also just a desire to, to, to run in every race. Cause you really never know when, what's going to happen. Yeah. I think, um, I, I want to come to the Democrats defense a little bit here only just to, just to mention, um, you know, one of the, one of the fundamental differences between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is the Democratic Party is just a a, a much more loosely held together, uh, fragile coalition of interests, and the Republican Party is not. It is it has or uh, at least has claimed to be over time sort of rooted in some foundational principles. Now those principles are obviously out the door, but it's it's become more of a loyalty cult now. But but it it has always been uh, regardless of how more cohesive than the democratic side. And when you're talking about organizing resources, dedicating dedicating resources at the national level to go focus on the states, it's very difficult to get everybody in the democratic party on the same side, on the same page as to where to put those resources because there's so many different interests. And And also no discipline, right? I mean, it's Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, dis- the the lack of discipline I think is a function of the 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 multitude of interests that you're trying to hold together with it with a single within a single container. And there really isn't any single through line for all of those interests, right? They don't all grab onto one single belief or principle, uh, and so uh, so there's a, so you have a you have a you have a structural disadvantage there in terms of the, the way the coalition is comprised. Um, and uh, my if I had one single piece of advice as an outsider looking into the Democratic Party, that would be fucking embrace federalism because it's the system that we have. It may not be the system that you wish we had, but it's what we have, and it's why Republicans are beating you at the state level. Um, so it, it, it's 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 funny you say that because you know I I was I've been thinking about I've been thinking a lot about state races, you know, recently, and you know it might shock you to know that in 2019 Tate Reeves in Mississippi. How, how actually I'm going to ask you this: how how many how badly do you think Tate Reeves in Mississippi? How much do you think he won by in 2019 in his governor's race against a Democrat? Um, I don't know. I have no idea. I get five points. Almost right. Four points. Oh. Only four, only 40,000 votes, right? Wow. 40,000 votes in a state that has incredible amounts of disenfranchisement from, you know, cause of, uh, laws against, uh, people who are formerly incarcerated voting, you know, but you, you start to think about it, right? 2019, it's an off, off year. It's designed intentionally to, to suppress democratic turnout. Um, you know, if it's a president, you know, presidential year, it's going to be different or in a, on a midterm type year. Um, but that's not that far off, right? That is in a state like Mississippi where, you know, the, the media markets are, are not very expensive. You're not talking about that much investment needed to get a really, really dynamic, interesting candidate over the hump. Christy Nome, Christy Nome, another, 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 uh, you know, uh, red state governor who we see running around on on television all the time wants to run for president. Clearly, uh, she won by like three or four percent. Also, uh, so these are not these are quote unquote red states, right? That Trump wins by you know twenty or thirty points in a presidential year, um, but in a non presidential year, when the when the focus is local issues, uh, these these are not wipeout elections. And, you know, good, qualified, interesting candidates can overcome 
some of these, you know, some of the, the, the registration disadvantages and things like that. Mississippi is not that far off from being a blue Democratic governor with the right type of candidate, with, with the right amount of money, and with the Democratic Party, you know, sort of swarming it in 2019. That is so right. That is so, and so well said. You can, look, all, I, I know that we've talked a lot about how politics is now nationalized, and in many ways it is, but um, but you can have you can, if you pay attention to the constituency to which you are appealing with the right candidate and the right message, it, they may not pass a national democratic litmus test for what you for what the Democratic Party or at least the elites in the Democratic Party want the you know want its representation to look like. But if it if it moves the needle of the balance of power in the right direction, it's a win. And and I I my appeal to the Democratic Party right now is that we need you to do that. We need you to focus on moving the needle of the balance of power, not not advancing uh, the, the you know your your wish list uh, for for progressive policies. I'm sorry, but that's a losing recipe. Um, so anyway, um, okay. Any last words on this segment? We did kind of get off topic, but worth it. Just if you could, just if you could relay that message, uh, loud and clear, yeah. Ron, we, we I'm trying. appreciate it. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> Three prominent Fox news hosts also texted Meadows on January 6th, urging him to persuade the president to make an effort to stop the insurrection. Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, and Fox and friends host, Brian Kilmeade all reached out to Meadows on that day. Ingram texted, quote, Mark, the president needs to tell the people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy, end quote. Kilmeade and Hannity echoed the concern. Kilmeade wrote, quote, please get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished. Hannity texted, quote, can he make a statement? Ask people to leave the Capitol. Ingram's text in particular seems to be in stark contrast with what she said on her show that night, that the people at the Capitol were, quote, antithetical to the MAGA movement, and that there were Antifa sympathizers in the crowd. So first of all, the thing that stuck out the most to me uh, in all of these messages, and Simon Rosenberg actually made this point on Twitter, and I just want to underscore it, um, who's been on the podcast before. It is very, very telling that everybody who's messaging Meadows at this point seems to think that the president of the United States uh, is, is the person to do something about what is happening. The, the fact that they're all asking the president to do something indicates that they believe he's responsible and that he has the power to, to stop it. And, and, and I just, I want to know what you both make of these texts and the Fox News host reaching out to Meadows. He, Simon also made, oh no, it was John Seifer, actually, another friend of the pod, who, who mentioned, um, you know, that we need to be talking about this, this hotline connection between Fox News and the White House uh, being, you know, at minimum inappropriate. Um, anyway, I'll stop. How did you both read this? Eric, why don't you lead off? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see the real time, uh, back and forth. Um, you know, everyone, you know, even if you were just watching on television, you know, everyone knew that the, the one person who could put a stop to this was the president, right? He was the only person who could potentially reach these folks in a in a in a visceral way and tell them to to, to go home? Um, you know, it wasn't going to be uh, Don Jr. It wasn't going to be Ivanka. It sure as hell wasn't going to be Mark Meadows. Uh, 
um, it was only it was only going to be the president. And you know, they also knew in real time, you know, how ugly this was and how you know dastardly it was and how uh, how how terrible it it looked. Um, you know, not just like you know optically, but just it was bad. It's it was an objectively terrible event in American history. And, you know, they felt like it was uh, going to harm, you know, the president. And, and so it, 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 they understood it. Now, you know, now we see it's, oh, it wasn't so bad. It was, you know, it actually was, uh, it was uh, a bunch of tourists, as some, you know, members have called it, the members of Congress have called it. Um, you know, we see the sort of the, the attempted uh, rebranding of it on, on places like, you know, Fox and other sort of conservative media. Um, but they knew you know, deep down, not even deep down, they knew on the surface on January 6th that it was bad. Um, and, you know, everything since then, the last 11 months have been ways to try and, you know, to try and downplay it. Yeah. And it it seemed, Liz, that they not only sort of came to that realization in the moment as it was happening, they knew beforehand that this was good. That they seemed to be uh, communicating from some, you know, uh, pre-existing knowledge of something that was about to happen. And I would remind everybody, I can't believe we haven't mentioned this yet. There was a goddamn PowerPoint circulated. There was a, there was a coup outlined in a PowerPoint that was circulated well in advance. I mean, I, I, I don't, you can't make this yeah, up. It, no, I, uh, laughing is certainly the the wrong reaction for me in this moment, but it's Ron, your energy around this topic is something that I, I obviously share. Look, my issue with watching what is happening with the Fox news, let's say truth coming out, which again, in the same sentence is, is a pretty rare thing to say. Um, it's really hard for me to read this coverage and not just think of this show succession. And be like this is this is very real. The way that the media operates within government non confines is extremely real. I think to your point about having a hotline where Fox News anchors can go right to the chief of staff to the president of the United States, that in and of itself is an issue. I mean, the fact that you bring that up at the top of the segment as like a you know, this is just another thing happening. That in and of itself is so damn huge that I am hopeful that the J6, you know, committee will continue to impress upon kind of those levels of communications. It is really just amazing to me that these hosts, even after the texts come out, they're still saying, you know, fake news, fake news. That's not how we felt. And that's not what we said. And, you know, I, I always bring it back to on this show, of course, what are voters thinking when they see this dialogue taking place in the news? Are voters going to say, no, I know, you know, Sean, you know, they feel like they're on first name basis with these different hosts. And, and you know, he would never say that or Laura would never do that. And, and they just they won't even believe what is being put in front of them by this bipartisan congressional committee. Like they're just not even going to believe it. They're going to believe what these anchors who give them their daily feeding, you know, they're going to believe those, those folks. And so I hope that it stays in the spotlight that these folks were able to get to Meadows directly in the first place. But I, I don't know that voters are, are going to move on this. Yeah. To that point, Eric, I have a, I have a question I'd like you to explore. Um, which is, you know, I I I, I agree. I, I can't imagine Fox News viewers sort of being exposed 
uh, to to the truth here or to any sort of. They also didn't talk about it on air. <laughs> right. They, yeah. It took them 24 hours to even acknowledge that these texts had been released. Right. Probably because they were waiting for a statement from their lawyer on how to handle it. I mean, there was a there was an exchange that I that I uh, that I tweeted uh, between um, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram where. You know, Sean was lamenting, you know, the, the one thing that does suck about all of this is that, you know, I can't, I can't use email anymore. I don't use social media. And, uh, and Laura Ingram's basically stopping him and saying, oh, no, we're not going to talk about that as if sort of to signal that they had been advised to you know, stop incriminating themselves on air. But, but, but I want to, I want to get at the, the viewers who are sort of relying on this quote unquote, I'm putting this in air quotes, news network, um, uh, to, to, to become more informed. At least there are some segment of them that are. And I'm reminded of, uh, you know, the way Pete Buttigieg handled himself uh, during the primary, during the presidential primary, frequently appearing on Fox News, most famously probably in that town hall, uh, where, he, where he called out the, 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 the opinion hosts and the network for the type of coverage that they give to their viewers who are sincerely looking for information and and spoke directly to those viewers, and I wonder, um, and I don't I don't necessarily know the logistics here or how feasible it is, but why don't we see more uh, credible Democratic messengers uh, getting booked on Fox to to at least try to to insert uh, some reality or an alternative perspective into the programming? Um, is it is it because Fox just simply won't book them? Is it because they see it as futile? Is it because they, uh, you know, they just they just see Fox as not a real news network, which you know I can sympathize with? Why don't we see more of that? And do you think that's something that Democrats ought to be doing? Uh, it's funny because I could I I could tell where you were going with the question as part of the windup, and I was going to be like, oh well, Pete uh, Pete goes on and does great. Yeah, um, you know, and, and you know. <laughs> I, 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 I agree. I, I mean, I think, you know, I think you can't leave to the, to the point we made earlier about, you know, com- competing everywhere and going uh, for every vote. That means you have to, I do think Democrats should, should go on. I think, you know, but I think it takes a certain, you know, Pete does excellent in it because Pete is one of the premier uh, communicators in the Democratic Party and, one, you know, one of the you know premier Democratic communicators in the last, you know, decade, I would say, as uh, as a messenger, he, he is incredible at it. Um, you know, I've seen, you know, Jake Auchincloss from Massachusetts, Congressman. Um, he, he went on repeatedly around, uh, Afghanistan around the, around the withdrawal, uh, you know, former Marine, um, you know, freshman Democrat who, uh, you know, did, did excellent in that, in that environment. I think it takes a certain type of, of Democrat to do it. I think it, it has to be someone who is, uh, who, you know, you're not going to get, you're going to get, you know, leading questions, you're going to get topic changes, you're going to get all sorts of things. I've done Fox News before and, and, and I've had, you know, actually I've had very nice experiences going on, but like, you know, I think that you just need to be ready for, uh, ready for the way that they're going to kind of, yeah, for, ready for the way that they're going to come at you. And you also have to, you know, know how to, 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 to deny the premise of the, of the questions, which oftentimes are, are, are leading or, or, you know, slanted one way. Um, it just requires a certain type of character to do it, but I don't, you know, Bernie Sanders has done, does, and has done Fox news and he's, he's great at it too. Um, you know, because he kind of knows how to, uh, you know, he knows how to speak to the audience. Amy Klobuchar has done Fox news and has done it well. Um, it, 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 so there, it is, it is there. 
Um, it's not, it's certainly not ubiquitous, but it's, it's a terrain that Democrats have to have to play on because I mean, at the end of the day, Fox news does also have a fairly large democratic audience too. Um, so you're, you're just missing out on whole swaths of voters. Um, if you're not, if you're not competing and talking to them. Yeah. That's a really important point that is so often overlooked. It isn't just a monolithic Republican audience that they're talking to. Yeah. I also think it's worth noting that Fox probably, uh, this is me assuming here, but they probably choose to elevate the most extreme voices. You know, they probably love when when Bernie Sanders is booked on the show, right? Because they use him as a punching bag. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does perfectly well. You know, representing the progressive wing of the party, but um, but Fox News knows that it isn't representative of the Democratic Party writ large, right? It's you know, it's it's if we're going to compete for every vote, if we're going to try and talk to everyone. Um, then we're going to have to, tr- we just have to try and talk to everyone. Earlier this month, the Biden administration relaunched the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico border policy. The program allows officials to send non Mexican immigrants to Mexico to wait for their U.S. immigration court hearings. Now, under the Trump administration, thousands of migrants were sent back into Mexico and resided in makeshift camps along the northern border, often in very dangerous conditions. Biden pledged to end the program and begin the process of admitting migrants who had been subject to it, but a federal judge in Texas ordered the administration to revive the policy. When the administration began re-implementing the program, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that DHS had put in place changes to, quote, improve humanitarian components, end quote. But she added that the administration still believes the program is, quote, inefficient, inhumane. Sue Kenny Flazer, the director of Border and Asylum Network at HIAS, said, quote, it's lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. Earlier this week, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against terminating the policy, and previously the Supreme Court denied a request from the administration to keep the program on hold while the case was appealed. A survey of 20,000 asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border conducted by the legal aid group Al Otro Lado found that 83% had been subject to threats or physical violence. So Biden made overturning this policy a campaign promise, Liz. How should we expect Democratic voters to respond to the revival of this program? Yeah. So, you know, not to be tongue in cheek, but I don't even think it's lipstick on a pig. It's like chapstick on a pig, right? You know, you you have the phrase lipstick because it's supposed to hide or beautify something and you just can't do that with this policy, right? Like you're putting something on it thinking it's helping, but it's so very clear to everyone involved that it's just not. And I know keeping campaign promises are critically important, especially as we go into what will be a potential bloodbath of a midterm election, but he's not even doing that here. And I think this is an issue that is really going to continue to divide that democratic tent. You know, you were talking in the previous segment about the structure of the democratic party and there not being a through line. I mean, immigration reform is pretty across the board, important to anybody who votes blue in elections for the most part, and comprehensive immigration reform, always at the top of the charts, always very important. And so when I look at this, I'm, you know, as a Democrat, I'm kind of like, what, what are you guys thinking? You know, what, what is happening here? Because they're not making the change that 
not only was promised, but quite frankly, is so needed. And Jen Psaki talking about fixing the humanity around these parameters. I mean, to me, that that just is, isn't the truth. If you look at if you look at what's going on. And so I think they are doing a little bit of tap dancing because I do think that ultimately, you know, looking at Joe Biden's past and history and voting records, this is clearly something that is important to him. And so maybe they're thinking, oh my God, we're dealing with so much other shit right now um, that this is a, a priority, but it can't be immediately. So we're going to put it moderately on a low burning back burner for now. I, I, I don't really know the thinking behind this, Ron, but but I do know that immigration reform across the board for Democrats is critically important. So I do think this more so than anything else we've discussed this segment or potentially anything else in the news right now will be critically important for what's going to happen with these midterm voters. Yeah, I I wonder if this is going to become you know salient during the midterms. I have no idea because there's just there's just so much else happening, and I have a hunch that it's midterms are going to be all about the economy and inflation. But um, but but Eric, the president is between a rock and a hard place here. Um, the courts are essentially interpreting existing law, right? And the reason we are where we are right now is because Congress hasn't acted. Um, so how? Can he walk the line of trying to restore faith in the executive branch um, and, and that it will follow the law, right? And also trying to achieve immigration reform. Whew. Uh, it's, yeah, it's tough. It's 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 tough. And you know, he he did uh, you know, halt the program, you know, once he got into office, and they've, you know, as we've said, they've had no sort of choice but to to reinstate it, um, you know the, the prospects of, of comprehensive immigration reform, you know, getting over a, a, a sixty vote hurdle in the Senate um, is, is it's just it's so. I mean, it, it's hard to get it's anything difficult now, right? Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to it's, it's it's hard to get. You know, they just shelved Build Back Better. You know, the other day. Yeah. Um, we you know, can barely pay our bills that we've already, you know, l- spent the yeah, money. You know, l- literally his signature or a signature, you know, domestic policy agenda, right, is like subject to the the the, the arcane Senate rules. Um, you know, the comprehensive immigration reform, a huge, a hugely important issue, needs to happen. It's needed to happen for 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 a, a really really long, long, long time. time really 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 long time i feel like we've been i feel like i've been it's been on you know when i worked in the house we were talking about it in 2007 or 2008 uh you know this this it, you know goes back to kennedy and mccain um you know you, you know that that was 16 years ago at this point um so you know is it going to be an issue is it going to be a midterm issue Maybe, but more so, it's just it's it's just an issue that we also just have to deal with as a country, um, and it's an issue that like it eventually it has to get done. And if it doesn't get done, then we're just going to keep, you know, we're just going to keep on these this merry-go-round of 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 policy issues and headaches and 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 things that are just going to pop up every every few months, and you know, there's no real there's no real off ramp. When you were talking about like, will this, you know, remain salient or, or you know, there's so many other things going on. Um, if you look to the states, like I can already envision, Eric, as I'm sure you can, and Ron, of course, I can already envision the digital ads, right? And the ads going on TV 
in states like Florida, Arizona, and Texas, right, where we have some pretty important statewide elections coming up in 22, I can already imagine what those ads look like. And so if I am a Republican operative, of which I am not yet, um, I, am, <laughs> I am looking at these articles and I'm looking at what's going on and I'm already writing these ads. I mean, Eric, I don't know if you think differently, but to your point of like, this has been an issue. We're talking 10, 15 plus years, still not addressed. And then you have this democratic president who was supposed to seen, you know, who was supposed to be seen as coming in right after Donald Trump. And he was going to change all of these incredible errors. I mean, Trump and the border in and of itself is is its own massive um, error to deal with, right? And so to come in and say, we're doing the best we can, I just don't think that cuts it for the midterms, even with everything else going on. Okay. A couple of things there. First of all, this is this is really cynical, but it's the way I've always thought about immigration reform as a as a as a practitioner um, uh, of you know of political campaigns. Right? It is it is one of the issues that is the most profitable to fight over, which is why it persists. I say profitable because in terms of electoral power, in terms of you know persuasive power, it's extremely emotional, which means it's very mobilizing. Uh, it also raises a fuck ton of money from the from the edges right which is where all the grassroots money in politics comes from the edges of the spectrum so so that so there's a really cynical answer of why it persists the way it does we know that you can't uh we now know right that you you can't change this with executive action it also looks uh you know as it always has been extremely fraught to get anything through congress and very you know very unlikely that that's going to happen so the question then becomes where does that leave us and what I want to let's let's I want to play a little thought experiment here uh, for a moment. Um, I, I like the I like the I like the mental model of what would have to be true in order for something to, ha- to happen. I use it a lot. Um, it, it's it's it, it helps me think a little bit differently. So let's just play this out for a minute. What would have to be true in our politics in in the way power is currently situated? Uh, for immigration reform, not only to be like the number one issue in front of the voters that everybody cares about, and also for there to be a path towards something meaningful happening, right? What in what way would the landscape have to be different than it is now? What uh, what levers would have to have power exerted on them uh, in order for in order for things to be different, right? How would things have to be different in order for immigration reform to happen? And I want to I want to inject one additional thought from our good friend Mike Madrid about uh, about the his, about Hispanic voting trends, because obviously this is a major this is this is every this is what um, lawmakers talk about behind the curtain, never in public, but the political implications of of, of immigration reform. Um, if you take California, this is something Madrid's been working on recently, diving into these numbers. Um, if you take California out of the national sample, because it's performing a little, it, 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 Hispanics, uh, Latinos in California are behaving differently than Latinos in the rest of the country. Uh, so if you remove California from the sample and look at, look at, uh, Latino voting trends, uh, everywhere else, they're, they're, they're getting about Republicans are getting about 50% of the Latino vote, which is astounding. Also alarming for Democrats. It, it has to do with uh, the way they do or don't resonate with the idea that they're an aggrieved minority, 
Uh, and increasingly, Hispanics do not see themselves as an aggrieved minority. They, uh, and many of them, in fact, identify as white. And uh, and so I just I want to put that on the table and uh, and see what you think about this this thought experiment. How the landscape would have to be different. Um, Eric, do you have any thoughts? Well, I, we we can't think of the vote first of all as monolithic, right? There's there's a whole uh, there's a whole host of different um, different things at play here, right? For instance, in in South Florida, um, you have a you have a big Cuban population um, where some of the uh, the socialism and sort of red baiting type attacks have residents. You go a little bit further north. In the I four corridor, it's uh, it's a big uh, Puerto Rican population, um, and there's a whole other set of issues surrounding Puerto Rico and the island that have that have salience. Um, so it, 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 it's not just one, you know, like like with many blocks of voters, it's not just one set of okay, uh, you know, uh, comprehensive immigration reform is a big deal because of of latino voters but you know there's a whole other host of 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 things at play here um that impact how people how people vote um and you know just because um you know someone belongs to a certain ethnicity doesn't necessarily mean that they're just gonna you know that it's just gonna or or one issue impacts a certain ethnicity doesn't mean that everyone is going to vote according right along those lines bingo yeah Liz, what do you think about my thought experiment? It's okay if we don't have an answer. I'm going to ask Mike Madrid this. Uh, yeah, no, and I'm... also, by the way, dear dear listeners, if you have an idea, I'd love to hear it. You should email us, podcast at politicology.com. I, I, too, am curious to hear Mike's thought. Mine is a little more, um, maybe a little too direct. I, I don't think a lot of this changes without a significant change in representation in Washington. Right, looking at um, the makeup of our Senate and not just having a razor thin majority for Democrats, but who those people are. I find that lawmakers who come with significant knowledge via personal story also really makes a very big difference. So I don't know. I think it's a lot about the makeup of our representation, the makeup of who actually decides policy and makes rules and laws. And um, just my general uh, plug that elections matter. Um, elections very, matter. Very elections have consequences. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean that, listeners. If you have an idea about what would have to be different, and just you know, the sky's the limit. Um, what would have to change uh, in in the political landscape in order for immigration reform to be the number one issue, uh, and for there to be a you know conceivable path forward to meaningful reform? I'd love to know what you all think. Podcast at politicology Now that we are up to speed on a handful of the biggest stories of the week, uh, let's turn to what you are watching under the radar. Eric, what do you have for us? Uh, I was going to say uh, the uh, the growing anti democratic uh, uh, (laughs) issues in the states and the laws that are being introduced and everything that's being done to undermine our democracy. Uh, But we spent about twenty minutes. 20 minutes, 20, minutes, 20 minutes on that earlier. Anything we um, missed? I, I will say one thing that is undercovered and yep. is, you know, I saw a couple of charts this week that 
um, had uh, that overlaid gas prices with Joe Biden's uh, approval rating. And it was right, it, you know, his approval rating starts to really go down as gas prices go up. And just last week, gas prices started to inch down. And almost like clockwork, uh, <laughs> Joe Biden's approval ratings, a few of a few of the polls this week had him, you know, almost essentially at, at 50 50. Um, so I, I'm I'm looking for and we haven't seen the sort of gloom and doom around the holiday season around the supply chain that Republicans were sort of desperately hoping for. Um, I'm looking to see if uh, Joe Biden um, begins uh, a mini rebound. Um, cause you know, as, as, as someone who's going to be working on a bunch of house and Senate races next year, um, it would be, uh, very beneficial if the president, uh, starts to move back up. What's that? What's that? James Carville? It's the economy stupid. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Thanks James. <laughs> Liz, what are you watching? Um, not something that's totally under the radar, but something that I think is very important is COVID. I mean, I can't believe we are still here, right? But thinking about this new variant, I do not believe it has yet received the oxygen um, that that it will receive when the spread this winter in these coming weeks and months will be rampant. And I'm very curious to see how the um, I don't know if it's re-emergence, but just emergence of a new variant, one that we are told is very contagious and very dangerous, um, less chance of death if you are vaccinated and boosted and all of that. But what is this winter going to look like for us with COVID? And then how will that play out for the remainder of calendar year 2022 into the midterms? I think that voters, again, just going back to that always, I think voters are going to be so sick and tired because they already are so sick and tired of elected officials who represent them changing rules and regulations once again. Do you have to show proof of vaccination to do X, Y, and Z? Do you have to wear a mask? Do you have to quarantine and how many days? I think we're going back into a wave of rules and regs changing quite a bit when it comes to this new variant. And I think that will have a haywire, really dangerous effect um, on our politics once again. I totally agree. This is something that Susan Del Percio, frequent uh, guest of the podcast, uh, has brought up multiple times, um, and and something that she thinks about a lot, which is just, you know, which is the our problem uh, of of effective, clear communication about the science and the, and what we know and what we don't know, and uh, it's, it's so and damaging just, beyond what we even know it's yet. So damaging. Yeah, it's so damaging, and it's you know, it's 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 understandable if you're listening to this and thinking, well, why can't people just you know do as they're told? Right. Because that seems to be the general attitude that I see from liberals on Twitter, which is so fucking annoying. Because it doesn't, it like if you uh, if you can't make clear sense uh, of of the danger and the, and the precautions that you're supposed to take, uh, it just, it, 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 it further decreases trust in every institution that matters. And that is sort of the global, uh, devastating trend that we're all trying to One, deal with. 100%. Right now. Just, I mean, we saw it in New Jersey and Virginia in their elections yeah. this year, more so in New Jersey, where the incumbent democratic governor and my former boss shouldn't have won by a razor thin, margin, but it comes down to the communication around how to best protect yourself and your loved ones from this virus. 
And with the lack of clear communication, I think that is has already permeated into our politics in a very significant way. But I think that will, in addition to the economy and inflation and so many other household issues, I think we will see COVID rear its very ugly head once again um, in our politics. Yeah. And I get it. Look, I, I get it. It's it is it's it's difficult enough to follow novel science about a novel coronavirus in the middle of a pandemic. Uh I I I get that. And it's difficult as difficult as it is to follow the science, it's even more difficult to distill that science into something, into some, you know, simple message that the public can can understand and act upon. Uh, but we just have to do better and we have to be more honest yeah. and we have to, you know, we have to trust the American people, right? I have a fun one uh, today. There is a Danish investment bank uh, called Saxo Bank, uh, which you may have heard of, may not have heard of. Um, every year around this time, they issue a list of predictions for the coming year that are intended to be provocative while still rooted in, in objective reality, things that we know. And last year, uh, they accurately predicted that a successful COVID vaccine would help return life to normal and cause a spike in inflation. Um, and I'm using a summary from Finimize, which is a great, you know, financial tracking app, uh, that distills, uh, distills financial news. And, um, Saxo Bank just released their outrage, quote unquote, outrageous predictions for 2022. And three of them caught my eye because, uh, they are, they are, they align with some of the topics and the way we've talked about, um, about things on politicology. Uh, the first one is they predict that U.S. consumer price inflation reaches 15% as companies are forced to hike wages to attract workers. Um, and I thought this was particularly interesting given the news from the Fed just yesterday, the day before, uh, where they are signaling um, multiple rate increases in 2022 uh, because they recognize that inflation is getting out of control. Uh, so there's one. Uh, two, inspired by the threat of inflation, governments row back on their commitments to replace fossil fuels with greener forms of energy. Eric, this uh, this goes to your uh, your chatter about gas prices and uh, and, and approval ratings. Uh, quote: The plan is sold as the only pragmatic way to bridge the reality of our energy consuming present with the desired low carbon future, while also limiting the risk of social unrest caused by rising food and energy prices. End quote. And then the third one, which is something that Mike and I have talked about a lot. Uh, this is how this is the prediction: A group of women start copying the tap the tactics of forums like Reddit's Wall Street Bets and organized to push for social change. Tired of some companies' sexist, racist, ageist, and ableist practices, they launch coordinated assaults on their share prices. Politicians worldwide welcome the movement, piling even more pressure on firms with, quote, outdated patriarchal attitudes, poor gender equality in pay, and underrepresentation of women on boards and in management. That's something I strongly believe we're going to see more of, uh, if not in 2022, definitely in in the in the coming years. So, um, any thoughts? I, I'm I'm hopeful that we see a lot of that. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, right? Yeah, same, same here. Very cool. Before we go to the after party, aka Politicology Plus, Eric, where can everybody find you on the internet and follow your work? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at uh, Eric D K O C H. Um, and as you said earlier, uh, founder of a communications firm called Downfield. Great. Liz? I'm on Twitter at underscore Liz Gilbert. And I'm at Ron Steslow on Twitter. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. 
You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.